Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Well, if you all recall from last week, we spoke about the temple in Jerusalem and we discussed the judgment that came upon it in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed both the city and the temple. Well, over the past several days, that topic of judgment has come up rather frequently in my own readings, um, coincidentally as well. I wasn't looking for it, but it kept popping up, um, something that's not particularly a comfortable trend, but it was a trend anyways. So, for example, I stumbled across an editorial by Catholic writer and social commentator Anthony Esselin from an older issue of Touchstone magazine titled Deliver Us From Evil. And in this uh, article, Esselin recalls the letter from a Birmingham jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, in which Dr. King appeals to a good nation marred by evil deeds. Basically saying, and King says, okay, America, live up to what you profess, right? Esselin then goes on to wonder if we might have moved beyond those days to the point where we can't describe ourselves that way anymore. And uh, I'm not going to go into the litany of wickedness that Esselin uh, gets into. It's a, it's a little bit too much for today. But um, he does conclude that there comes a point when there is no remedy for a society but God's judgment. That's a very sobering read and something I've been thinking about. Well, similarly, in my private devotions, I recently began the book of Isaiah from my Old Testament readings, and Isaiah is written to a people that's under God's judgment. God's people are going through judgment when Isaiah is writing. And so it opens with a prophecy, a very sobering prophecy in chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. So chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been cleansed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So Isaiah is painting a picture here of a people who are willfully self-destructive and willfully blind to the point where God's only choice was harsh and even violent judgment. Nevertheless, Isaiah recognizes that even in his judgment, God shows mercy. 
on his people by preserving a very small remnant. So because of his faithfulness to his people, God does not make Jerusalem like Sodom or Gomorrah. His judgment does not result in total destruction. He doesn't just wipe his people off the face of the earth. Um, they deserved it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the whole point, right? God had been warning them for generations. But God still preserves a very small remnant. And as I've continued on in the book, this theme of judgment has continued steadily, but so have these little hints of redemption to come. As sobering and as terrifying as God's judgment necessarily is, and if we want justice, that means judgment has to come too, right? That those things go together. And that's terrifying. But God always gives hope of redemption to those who would turn to him. Now, in our Old Testament lessons for morning prayer today, one of those lessons, this is every week it, ha- it goes like this. One of the lessons has a little star next to it in our lectionary, which tells us it goes with our epistle and gospel that we just read. Now, the, the starred Old Testament lesson from today's morning prayer is an example of this kind of hope we find in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 26, verses 12 through 19. And so if you'd uh, turn there, Isaiah 26 verses 12 through 19. And again, this is designed to go with our uh, communion readings today as well. We read, Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our works in us. O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord, thou hast increased the nation, thou art glorified, thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee, they poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near to the time of her delivery is in pain, and crieth out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and seeing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So at this point in the book of Isaiah, the people come to their senses, at least in part. I mean, we still have another, oh gosh, 20, 30 some chapters here. (laughs) The people have been through judgment and they've awakened to God. They have been oppressed and dominated by other lords, but they have turned back to Yahweh, to the Lord in prayer. They said, by thee only will we make mention of thy name. The Lord's chastening then had had its effect, and and he's destroyed those false gods. Isaiah likens the people's plight to having the pains of labor, but only giving birth to wind. They suffered and had nothing to show for it, it seems. But nevertheless, God promises resurrection. By dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and seeing ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew as the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. 
Because you see, for those who belong to God, judgment is not the end of of the story. The answer to the pain of judgment is the glory of resurrection. Now, our epistle for this Sunday is St. Paul's summary of the gospel from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find this on page 204 in the prayer book. And this is 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning of the chapter. St. Paul says, Brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. So here, St. Paul gives the core elements of his message in preaching the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again, all according to the scriptures. He was then seen by reliable eyewitnesses. So first Peter, that's Cephas in our text. Uh, That's just another name for Peter. Um, Then the 12, then 500 folks in Galilee, some of whom have died, but most of whom are still alive at the time Paul is writing. And then St. James and the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. And then Paul himself. Now this phrase, according to the scriptures that St. Paul uses, specifically refers to the Old Testament and its prophecies. You know, because at this time, the majority of what we now call the New Testament, including, by the way, all four Gospels, none of the Gospels were written down yet, was still being written. You know, we had a few things, a few of the letters that had already been written and were circulating, but most of it is still to be written at this point. The events of Jesus' life, which culminates with his passion, death, and resurrection, were always part of the plan. And God consistently had given hints of that plan as he spoke to his people. Notice that St. Paul said here, our Lord died for our sins. So that means that Jesus took our judgment upon himself. He suffered God's righteous judgment for sin so that we would not have to. Christ then rose from the dead, and that resurrection was vindication and proof of his righteousness. So it showed that he he was indeed righteous. He did not deserve judgment, even though he took the judgment. But also that resurrection is a guarantee of our own resurrection. Now in the next section of 1 Corinthians that immediately follows our epistle, St. Paul goes on to stress the importance of the resurrection. And in fact, he notes that without the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. Um, Those of y'all who who have been around for a while may recall um, a common refrain among some of the more liberal theologies about how, oh, you can leave off the virgin birth, you can leave off the resurrection, nobody believes in that any day, and still have the faith. St. Paul says, no, you can't. (laughs) It don't work if there's no resurrection. In, uh, in speaking of the resurrection, in, in our second book of homilies, one of those core documents from the era of the Reformation, one of those homilies is the uh, homily on the resurrection. And in the, in the beginning, it says this. 
Assuredly, so highly comfortable is this article, that is the resurrection, to our consciences that it is even the very lock and key of all our Christian religion and faith. And then it goes on a little while later to describe the benefits of Christ's resurrection for the Christian. It says, by his death that he, had, that he hath wrought for us the victory over sin, death, and the devil, and by his resurrection hath he purchased everlasting life and righteousness for us. It had not been enough to be delivered by his death from sin, except by his resurrection we had been endowed with righteousness. He gives us his righteousness in his resurrection. Now, I'm currently about three quarters of the way through um, the latest book from Lutheran pastor Jordan Cooper. Um, it's on union with Christ. It's something that I was uh, kind of assigned to as a, as a, as a writing assignment for one of, the, uh, one, of the, one of the groups I write for. And a key aspect of union with Christ is what's sometimes called the great exchange. And that means that in, our, in the incarnation, when our Lord took upon Humanity, when he became one of us, taking upon himself our human nature, he takes our humanity, which includes its corruption, its mortality, and its judgment, the judgment that's due on our fallen humanity because of sin. That's what he takes. And in return, he gives us his immortality, his righteousness, and his sonship. So then we're united to Christ. We get all these benefits of the resurrection. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit because of that unity. And we're made righteous both by imputation. That is, he declares us righteousness. We are, we are, he says, these guys are righteous because of my son's righteousness. But also by infusion where he actually does make us righteous. We are better because we're united to Christ. With all of that, we then are to live as that righteous remnant Isaiah talked about. Toward the end of that homily on the resurrection, we read this. Thus, good Christian people, for as much as ye have heard these so great and excellent benefits of Christ's mighty and glorious resurrection, let us now in the rest of our life declare our faith that we have to this most fruitful article by framing ourselves thereunto in rising daily from sin to righteousness and holiness of life. That's the same kind of thing we prayed in our collect just a few minutes ago. We prayed, O God, who declarest thy almighty power, most chiefly in showing mercy and pity, mercifully grant unto us such a measure of thy grace that we, running the way of thy commandments, may obtain thy gracious promises and be made partakers of thy heavenly treasure through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we may not know what temporal judgment may come upon our society. You know, we demand justice, justice demands judgment. We don't know what that, what, that, what that may or may not look like. We do know that God's justice is a good thing. That's something we, we should be looking forward to. But it's also a terrifying thing because in of ourselves, we all fall under that judgment. His justice, his justice does often play out in this world, even as we know it's going to ultimately be realized in the world to come. We might not see it fully now, but we will see it one day in the world to come. And when he does delay that justice and that judgment in this world, 
It's for our good. He's giving us a chance to repent. He's given falling humanity, sinful humanity, a chance to turn to him and to escape that ultimate justice, the ultimate consequences of his righteous judgment. But most of all, he has sent his son to die for our sins and to take that judgment upon himself and in return give us his righteousness. Because even in judgment, God always shows his mercy. So as that remnant, as God's people, the church, we can rejoice in his mercy. We can rejoice in his justice, even as we pray that God would indeed set things to right. And we pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.